Welcome to Book Bistro, where book enthusiasts come to chat about the books they love in a warm and supportive environment. Tuesday, January 3rd, 2023. This is Shannon. We are here for our first episode of the year. I'm here with Stacy and Kristen tonight, and we are just going to chat with you about some things that we have recently read and loved. So we will get this started with the usual housekeeping information. Then Stacy will start us off, followed by me, and lastly, Kristen. You can find us on Facebook by searching for the Book Bistro podcast. Once there, you can post to our timeline. You can also message us privately. If you want a more social interaction, you can join our Facebook listener group, which is pretty quiet at the moment, though we are looking at some ways of possibly revamping it. If Facebook is not your thing and you still would like to hang out with us, check us out on our WhatsApp group. You can subscribe to that either by messaging us through Facebook or by sending us an email and one of us will be happy to add you. If you're looking to get a hold of us via email, you can do that by contacting the book bistro podcast at gmail.com. So I don't know if August of 2022 is actually considered recent however recent ish recent ish and I just want to yell about this book from the rooftops as often as humanly possible so my first book tonight is The Undertaking of Heart and Mercy by Megan Bannon and this book was such an unexpected gem I have a huge thing for both epistolary novels and enemies to lovers the enemies to lovers trope And this book delivered both in such a gorgeous, nuanced way. So we have, this book is sort of um, set in a sort of fantasy world that has some in common with the world we live in, but also includes things like talking animals who are the mail carriers for this world. And it's just delightful and whimsical. And we have Hart, who basically his job is to sort of be like border patrol to make sure that the world that they live in is staying safe from, um, from threats that could come and sort of accost people in this world. So he has this very lonely job. And part of what he does is when he finds a deceased person out in the sort of like borderlands of this world, he has to take them to one of the undertakers where their bodies can be processed and they can be set a sail in their wooden boats to go on to their eternal rest. And there is one specific undertaker that he always tries to avoid when at all possible. And that is Birdsall and Son undertakers because more often than not, he has to run into the daughter of the undertaker And her name is Mercy. And they rub each other the wrong way at every opportunity. They're like, what would you say? Oil and water, they just don't mix. And one day Hart has to deliver 
a corpse to the bird sullen son undertaker. And he and Mercy get into an especially heated sort of discussion. And he leaves feeling very disgruntled and he just feels pretty bad about things. So he writes a letter to a friend. And this letter gets delivered to a friend. Well, as you may have guessed, as so often happens in epistolary novels, a friend ends up being Mercy. And Mercy is doing her best to keep the Undertaker, Birdsall, and Son afloat, despite the fact that she is the daughter and her father refuses to change the name of the Undertaker service to reflect her. She works her butt off from dawn till beyond dusk every day to keep this undertaking facility open for her father and her younger brother who is in undertaker school and yet this is yeah basically and like this is not this is not her passion you know she's she's trying to do these things to keep the family going but it's it's hard and they're like on a shoestring budget and you know things are constantly going wrong and it all has fallen on her shoulders because her father's health is not doing all that well And so when she starts getting letters from a friend, she writes back as a friend. And this beautiful written relationship is born between people who hate each other in real life, which also is a trope that I adore. And throughout the book, Heart and Mercy learn to both, well, they're they're in love with the, um, the written versions of each other. And, you know, what's going to happen when they actually meet in real life and realize that the friend that they've been writing to is the person in real life that they cannot stand. This book is lovely and whimsical and charming and a little dark and was my top read of 2022. It has everything um, that makes a romance perfect for me. It was pitch perfect in every way. And this, again, is The Undertaking of Heart and Mercy, and it's written by Megan Bannon. All right, so my first pick tonight is The Emma Project, and this is book four in Sonali Dave's um, Raja series, and these are like contemporary romances that are twists on popular Jane Austen novels. So this, of course, as you can probably guess from the title, is Emma, but with a twist, So this is the story of Vansh Raja, and he is the youngest in this family. And his life is just like golden in pretty much any way you can think of. Like Vogue is always talking about how he is like the most successful and the the most handsome, and he's just charmed. And then we have Nina, who we met in Incense and Sensibility. And you learn in that book that she is been in a 10 year long fake relationship and now that relationship is ended and Nina has a lot of emotional baggage that she carries around with her mostly because her father is like a giant ass um like there's just not a better way to say that um everything that he can do to make her life miserable and her mother's life miserable like he's just very happy to do um so he is not not a good individual. And because of this, you know, Nina has 
some pretty deep emotional scars. So now she's out of this fake relationship and she is pretty much done with, with a romance, real, fake, doesn't matter. So she decides that she's going to just focus on her work. She is a philanthropist um, and kind of an, a social activist. And she's working to establish this foundation that will bring medical care to some of the more impoverished areas of the world. Now, Vange has decided that he is done moving around. He wants to settle down in the Bay Area where his family is. And he too has done a lot of like philanthropic work, but he wants to kind of focus this in a little more. And through a series of events that I don't want to reveal here, he decides that he's going to focus on homelessness in San Francisco. And this puts him in direct competition with Nina for funding for this project. And so the two of them are kind of at cross purposes and they're both you know, competing for this funding. Both of them, of course, think that their projects are like super you know, deserving. And Nina is really like angry that Vosh has come in and threatened this funding that has been kind of earmarked for her for a while now. And he just doesn't understand like why they can't work together. Like, why can't they unite and sort of come at it from both ends? Um, this, you know, has a lot of, a lot of reasons why this won't work, but he doesn't realize this necessarily. Um, this is, there's a lot of like really great banter here. Um, this is kind of the, the grumpy sunshine trope, but reversed where the, um, the hero is actually the kind of sunshiny, ever optimistic one. And Nina is more of the, the grumpy, you know, very, very practical, um, very unwilling to budge even when it's in her best interest to do so. Um, this was a lot of fun. I loved seeing Nina as a point of view character instead of as just kind of like a side character as she was in the previous installment in this series. And I also just really love this family. Um, they are a big kind of extended family. Um, there's lots of really cool like Indian American culture. There was a little bit of a side plot that I thought was a little odd um, dealing with a person who may or may not be clairvoyant. Like, I'm not sure like how that worked its way in. Um, but the overall like romance between Nina and Vaunt was just excellent. And if you haven't read this series, I highly recommend it. It starts with um, Pride, Prejudice and other flavors and goes on. Um, this is the fourth book, as I said. So this is the Emma Project. Raja's book four by Sonali Dave. And as I reiterate every time we talk about this author, she's still in my TBR and I still haven't picked up any of her books. Um, and I'm sorry. I need to rectify this. You do, do, because especially this series, like they're all set in San Francisco. So my first book tonight is one that I have been waiting for and waiting for because I binged the O'Brien tales. Yes. Binged 
and fell in love with every single character. Me too. Even the novellas. I've read the novellas um, and just loved every single book. So this is Hoik, O'Brien Tales number nine by Stacey Reynolds. And this has to do with Daniel McPherson, who we meet further along into the O'Brien Tales. He is the long lost nephew of Sorka. Um, and he is an earl. This earldom was, was passed on to him by the man that he called father all of his life who raised him. But, but Daniel is not your typical earl. He wants, he doesn't want the seat in parliament. He really, you know, he does what he has to, but he's not very present in that aspect. He's not high and mighty. He doesn't use his position to, you know, gain ground, things of that nature. He actually lives a double life. And it is quite epic. And when his secret life takes him into some very muddy waters in Belize, and he crosses paths with Aiden, which is one of his O'Brien cousins, he realizes just how strong these new family ties that he has recently found are have become in such a short time. Um, he also definitely has a love interest um, that will kind of flourish during his secret uh, life escapades. But it is it is so very interesting to to see how this plays out, how this story plays out and how the other O'Briens that we have loved for so long come into this story. And I was so happy that we got to see quite a bit of the Mm -hmm. O'Briens. It is several years after the uh, book eight. Um. So a lot of the children that we saw as young children in the main part of the series have grown up significantly. We see children that we did not see before, um, younger ones and things of that nature. And so it, it is absolutely the complete happy bliss of the rest of the series. And I was a little worried since it kind of leaves Ireland and takes a turn that the other books did not. Um, but I loved it just as much. Daniel is just as swoonworthy as any um, O'Brien, which I guess ultimately he, I mean, he's not blood to the O'Briens, but he is a Mullen, technically. Um, so, which is Sorka's family name. And so it's just the ties, the family, it's so beautiful. Um, if you can get through it without crying, then you might need to go see a cardiologist because I'm not sure you have a heart. <laughs> <laughs> but if you um, if you have not read the O'Brien tales, please, please pick them up ASAP. 
The first book is Raven of the Sea. And yes. you won't be able to put them all down. Even the novellas are definitely worth reading. Um, I would go so far as to say pick up book six first because it's technically a prequel. <laughs> and I learned uh, this yes. further down into the series. Um, but if you don't, it, it's okay. Um, it's just going to throw you backwards a little bit. But it's just as lovely. So this is Hoik. O'Brien Tales number nine by Stacey Reynolds and go read them all right now, right now. Oh, I like, I feel sad that I can't like, there's just some times where you start a series and then you wish later that you could go back and like experience them again for the first time. Yes. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's this. And there's just so much. um, The thing that attracted me to the series in the beginning was the found family in book one. Um, yes. And just the way that this Irish village embraced this, this woman in the first book. And then you, you meet the family and all their stories kind of, you know, move along from there. But my second book this evening is by one of my more recent favorite authors. I think I discovered her in 2020. And this is Olivia Dade. And her most recent Yay. book, I know, her most recent book, Shipwrecked. Um, and it's spoiler alert number three came out in October, maybe uh, November. So this series is about um, a group of actors in um, a fantasy series called Gods of the Gates. And within this like broader story arc, it it's sort of also like um, an homage to like fan fiction and some of the tropier things that kind of happen within fan fiction. And as someone who has read her fair share of fan fiction. Um, I really, really enjoy that aspect of this series. So in Shipwrecked, we focus on Maria and Peter. And Maria and Peter met one evening when they are both in the same place, actually in a sauna. And they're very, very attracted to each other. And so they have this amazing chemistry and connection and they have this wonderful one night stand. Well, that's how Maria sees it. But Peter wakes up alone in his hotel room and is quite upset that Maria has left him with no way of contacting her, um, of like ever seeing her again. And his disgruntlement sort of morphs into full-blown rage when he discovers that Maria is actually going to be his co-star in Gods of the Gates. And the issue is that Peter and Maria will be filming their aspect, their part of the show on this remote island off the coast of Ireland for the next six years. And so at first, so it kind of goes from like a one night stand to like an enemies to lovers sort of plot because he just does not respect her. His whole goal, Peter has been a character actor for all of his career because he is a fat actor. And how often do we see fat romance heroes? Pretty close to never. And so he's always cast in these type roles as like the best friend or like the supporting character. And you know, he's really trying to break out of that sort of stereotype. And this, this Gods of the Gates um, series is his way of kind of breaking into the bigger time. 
And he doesn't want some woman named Maria, who he thinks has no talent whatsoever. She was actually um, an actress, a stage actress in Sweden. And he sort of feels as though she is not up to the task of, you know, playing opposite him as his co-star in this really important fantasy show. So, you know, they start out kind of um, as adversaries and he says some pretty unkind things to her. But all the time kind of simmering beneath the animosity is this attraction that's never gone away. But the longer they spend time together and the more he sees her work and the more she's around him, they develop a friendship that sort of becomes like the anchor of of their time on this island. And they become not only friends, but they become best friends who have agreed to never act on their attraction because it could, it could spoil everything, you know, for them if, if it ends and they have to be co-stars. Six long years later, these best friends record their final episode of Gods of the Gates and they can no longer deny the way that they feel about each other. And they have this really spicy encounter on their last night on the island. And they think it is only going to be a one night stand or a kind of a brief thing because Peter's going back to Hollywood and he is going to, um, you know, really work on like coming up with his next part. Um, and Maria is returning to Sweden and her family to try to figure out what's next. But Peter doesn't want Maria to leave and he wants to prove to her that he can be the kind of man that sticks for her and stays around. I love this book. I loved everything about it. I love that, first of all, we have a hero that's a little bit non-traditional in terms of his looks. And we have a plus-size heroine who, you know, basically is like the poster child, the poster girl for body positivity. Um, and she actually is in the book, but just in general, like it's, it's really refreshing to read a book about people who, you know, are able to embrace their size in a healthy way and can be you know, can have really hot smoking sex and not be like this sort of romance um, stereotype of, of characters. Um, there's also a lot of really wonderful banter um, among all of the different actors on the, on, who text each other throughout the book. And there are some really hysterical um, fan fiction um, snippets from different, at the ends of different chapters from, uh, fans of Gods of the Gates who write different fan fiction shipping different characters. So this book is just absolutely lovely. Um, I keep saying that there's no way that a book can be as good as, you know, the previous book in the series. And every time, third time, you know, the book is just as good as, all, as both of the other two. Spoiler alert is the first book in the series. And I'd recommend reading these books in order because you get to know more about the characters and the show um, by reading the books in order. So this again is Shipwrecked. And it's spoiler alert number three by the always amazing Olivia Dade. Do we get to see people from spoiler alert? Yes. And oh, good. Because the, the, I guess what I should mention too, is that a lot of the actors on this show form a found family and um, have a relationship outside of the show, which I think is really cool. So you do get to see characters from both spoiler alert and all the feels right i am going to change things up a little bit it is time for a dark twisty thriller of course it is 
It is. This is All Good People Here by Ashley Flowers. Um, this was one of my, I don't know, like my second or third from last um, final reads of 2022. This actually came out earlier in the year. Um, so this is the story of Margot. Margot is an investigative reporter. She has these dreams of being like, super successful, but she's working for this small time newspaper at the moment. And she's kind of floundering. She has learned that her uncle has been diagnosed with early onset dementia. And this has really thrown her for a loop as, as one would imagine. She and her uncle Luke have been really close like all of her life. And in a lot of ways, he was the father to her that like her father just wasn't capable of being. So she returns home to the small town where she grew up and she's decided that she's going to do what she can to care for her uncle and hopefully, you know, give him as much of like a, a good quality of life as she can. But this does impact her work in some not great ways. She's not able to focus on her stories, um, things that she's assigned kind of fall by the wayside and just a lot of things are going wrong for her. Well, once she's back home, she really starts to dig in to this cold missing persons case from her own childhood. So she was friends with a little girl named January when they were growing up. And one night January disappeared and no one really knew what had happened. There were a lot of suspicions and rumors, like people wondered if, you know, her mother had done something to her, um, but no one really had like a clear cut answer. Well, now that Margot is back home and kind of at loose ends, she decides that she wants to solve this case once and for all. And so she starts trying to talk to people, trying to find out what people remember about the case because Margot herself was like six years old when this happened. So obviously she doesn't have some of the memories that, you know, an, an adult um, would have had and doesn't have the understanding of everything that went on. So she starts asking questions of both, you know, her family and people who knew January, January's family. She tries to kind of find an in with the local police force to see if you know, she can like get access to some of the case files. And it becomes clear pretty quickly that pretty much everybody has something to hide here. Some of the things that they're hiding may not technically relate to the case, but there's a lot of things that people don't want getting out. And this, as one would expect in a thriller like this, will put Margot in danger um, and will threaten you know, any kind of like peace and sort of, you know, solidity that she's trying to put in place both for herself and for her uncle. This moves kind of back and forth in time from present day to the time of January's disappearance. And so we get to see things from the perspective of not only Margot, but January's mother as well. Um, I loved this. It would have been a five-star read for me up until the end. And it's not so much that the end was bad. Um, like I don't, I don't quibble with like the way that the, the mystery itself was solved. 
but the ending did have kind of an ambiguity to it that I struggled with. And so I would, you know, sort of take off like half a star for that, but this is still a very, very solid, enjoyable, very engrossing read. This is All Good People Here by Ashley Flowers. It does sound really interesting. Yes, I liked it. My second book tonight is one that I was not sure I was going to like when I started reading it. Um, but <laughs> it it starts off so, um, what is the word, suggestive and funny that I really just had to keep reading. Um, and I will, I will explain uh, in just a second what kind of put me off in the beginning. But this is Master Baker by Pippa Grant. And this is about Grady Rock and Annika Williams. And Grady, he calls himself a master baker. And this book starts out with some very explicit sexual talk. And then you find out that it's Grady talking to his donuts, his dough for making donuts in his bakery. And this is what he claims is his secret to all his delicious baked goods is how he shows the dough love. And it, it is quite epically funny. Um, but then you have Annika Williams, who was his best friend in high school for all four years. And he was very much in love with her, but waited till the very last second to tell her this. And because of her childhood and how she grew up, she kind of pushed him away and she left and went and spent 10 years in the army until she had to come home because her mother goes blind. And this is where I had a little bit of a squirm factor because of the way they initially talk about how she's gone blind and she needs this and she needs that and she can't do this and she can't do that. It was all very kind of stereotypical um, of, of it, sounding like someone who had never interacted with a blind person before. But I will say as the story goes on, that does get better. Um, and it mostly focuses on Annika and Grady because not only has Annika come home because of her mother, but she has come home to help um, run her mom's bakery in a town called Sarcasm, which is next door to a town called Shipwreck. And Shipwreck is where Grady lives and runs his bakery. And Sarcasm is where Annika and her family live with their bakery. And these are two rival towns. They can't stand each other. 
And this has gone on for years. Um, and Annika's biggest issue is that she doesn't know how to bake. She catches everything on fire. Um, and it's actually her 13-year-old sister who is the baker in the family that's keeping the bakery open and producing all the good, yummy things um, because Annika just cannot do it. And so this, uh, this story will show how Grady and Annika come back together. Grady has some decisions to make, some choices to make on whether he is more willing to keep his bakery or get his best friend and love of his life back. Um, this book is so very funny. Um, Grady has a pet goat that is quite funny in his own way and kind of a matchmaker. Um, the rivalry is hilarious. There's a parrot called Longbeak Silver. Um, it's just an epically great story all the way around. And I really, really thoroughly enjoyed it from mostly from beginning to end. So this is Master Baker by Pippa Grant. Sarah really liked this book. Um, she read it, I want to say like a year or so ago. And she said that um, it was pretty delightful. And um, Pippa Grant writes really, really funny books like that make you she scream, does. laugh and kind of wet your pants and like, that, you know, but then Sarah said there was a little bit of a deeper kind of um, feel to this book. It's not quite as this one had a little bit more depth and heart, I think, than some of her other books have. So I am going to deviate from the world of romantic comedy because I'm going to talk about something that is post-apocalyptic because Yay. if I, I know, and if I ever need a break from the romance genre or just feel like I need something a little bit different, she the first thing the I do, I do, I go and play <laughs> zombies and every once in a while, maybe like a electromagnetic pulse, but mostly I want to read something where the world is decimated and people are running away from something. I love the beginning of the apocalypse, like in every, like that's the kind of books I love to read. So I was really happily surprised when I found out that Adrian Lecter, who wrote the Greenfield series, has started a new series. Um, the first book is Survival, and it's called The World of Anthrax, book one. Again, the author is Adrian Lecter. Um, the first book of the series is available in Kindle and also in audio. So whatever your reading pleasure, you can probably find it for this book. And this book is about Callie. She is in college. Um, I'm thinking maybe it might be grad school. And Callie, you know, has been celebrating her finals with her housemates, um, with her roommates in her apartment. And they went out and they got pretty tanked. And they woke up the next day all feeling pretty low. And so they ask Callie if she'll go to the coffee shop where she works 
and bring back some bagels and cream cheese to help everyone get over their hangovers. And Callie's feeling pretty miserable, but you know, she's like, okay, I can, I can help my friends out. And so she goes out into the hallway of her apartment building and realizes the elevator's out. And she's like, what the heck? And so she goes down all 11 floors of stairs to get down to the street. And she goes to the university campus and goes into the coffee shop, which surprisingly is closed. And she digs out bagels and cream cheese. And as she's leaving, she realizes that, oh my gosh, the power's actually out. And she hears some weird noises, but she shakes it off and she kind of trudges her sick self back through the streets to her apartment building, gets up all 11 flights of stairs, and then cannot eat the bagels and cream cheese because she is too sick to do so. And for the next few days, she and her friends all languish in their apartment, too ill to do much more than cough and be sick and lay in their beds miserably. But finally, Callie starts to think that maybe she needs to go and like, you know, get some help for her friends um, and for herself because things are pretty bad. And if she waits much longer, she's going to be too sick to leave the apartment. And while she's been in the apartment sick and everything, she thought she saw something very distressing um, that she has basically told herself was the product of maybe for the first time in four years taking drugs again that she doesn't remember during her night of partying. Because you know, watching like someone take someone down on the street and like take a bite out of them, like that can't actually be happening. Like all the people who are driving all erratically, like in the streets, like that can't be happening. And so she goes to find help and finds an aid camp close by and realizes that there are way more people than just her and her friends who are sick with whatever this horrible thing is. And so she ends up um, getting all of her friends to this camp for people who are ill with this thing. And they're all like in this, this tent, um, like using, you know, oxygen masks and things like that. And there are just sick people all around them, all around them. Sometime later, Callie wakes up in this tent and realizes that she is actually the only person alive. And she sees her friends um, and they are decidedly no longer alive, but one of them starts moving and it scares her terribly because I mean, that would scare anyone. And she gets out of the tent after several false starts, you know, and she's very, very ill and realizes she's been locked in this camp that was supposed to be a camp to like assist everyone and now has been abandoned and the people who are dead in this camp are not staying dead. And she is the most appetizing meal on offer. And thus begins Callie's first like attempt to escape from this horrible like camp situation. And then out into the wider streets of the city where then she realizes that this is a wider spread problem than just behind these fences. And this whole book focuses on her trying to get out of this city full of the undead and the people that she meets along the way, some good and some not so good. This book is a lot of like running away and figuring things out a little bit. Um, it's everything that I love in a first book in a good zombie apocalypse series 
Um, you know, the, the whole, like what's happening comes upon her very gradually. Um, and we're learning right along with Callie, like what's going on in the world. And it's not a good thing. And I, I found this book quite entertaining. Um, I did read some of Adrian Lecter's Greenfield series and that series took a very, very dark turn. And, um, I actually didn't finish it, but this, the voice in this series is a little bit different. So I'm hopeful that, um, I'm hopeful that the character of Callie will continue to be developed in interesting ways. And Callie has a lot of backstory that we are just beginning to explore. Um, the third book just came out, um, at the end of December and I haven't started it yet because it's always so painful for me to pick up a book and then have to wait a long time for the next book to be released. Um, I really enjoyed this series. If you like post-apocalyptic books, if you like books that include zombies, and if you like well-written post-apocalyptic books by women, by female authors, definitely give this a try. This book is Survival, World of Anthrax, book one by Adrian Lecter. And I'm shocked that Shannon hasn't read it yet. Uh, so I have read the first six Greenfields books and book seven is sitting on my iPad. Um, so I kind of figured I would finish Greenfields before I dove into, dove into this Adrian Lecter. <laughs> that makes sense. That makes sense. But I will join you on the apocalypse train. Excellent. Because I saw a post on Facebook the other day from Sarah talking about a post-apocalyptic book that she read and loved. So I decided that I would pick it up and read it too. So this is The Light We Lost, Lost Light, book one by Kyla Stone. Oh. Um, there are two books out in this series so far, and it looks like the third will be coming pretty soon. So this is very, very exciting. And I have to say, I was very happy when I saw this because Kyla Stone's books can sometimes be pretty short. And the two that are out now in this series are not. And so this makes me very, very happy because I am not a short book person. No, no. So unfortunately, there are no zombies here, um, but that's okay. This is set in Michigan's Upper Peninsula. And there is a solar storm going on and it is very, very strong. Um, you can see like these Northern lights in the sky, like the sky is basically red. And as a result of this, the power grid is failing and society is collapsing. We follow four characters um, through this. One is Shiloh, who is a 13 year old girl who wakes up next to the dead body of her grandfather. And she does not know what happened to him. She cannot remember. And now she is trying to find her brother who has gone missing. And she's also, of course, trying to navigate like this, this storm and the collapse of society. We then have Eli, who is just out of prison. Um, he's been released on a technicality. He was imprisoned for a murder that he claims not to have committed. Um, not that this is like surprising, because I think most people that are in prison for murder will say they didn't do it. Um, but the belief is, as the reader, that Eli is, in fact, like not guilty of this. And he is out for revenge. He wants to find out who like set him up for this crime. But this becomes a lot harder to do 
when the power grid fails, just, you know, as, as you would expect. Now, Eli's former best friend is the undersheriff of this town in Michigan's Upper Peninsula, and his name is Jackson. And he is really haunted by everything that went on with Eli eight years before. And he has a really hard time believing that Eli did what everyone says he did, but he also, you know, is a police officer and was trained like to follow the evidence and to uphold the law. So he did arrest Eli eight years ago and help to convict him of, of this murder. So now that Eli's out, Jackson isn't quite sure, you know, how this is going to work for everybody. We then have Lena, who is all the way in Florida, and she is trying to get to Michigan to rescue her dead sister's children. And, you know, this is a very treacherous journey for her. Um, She has a giant Newfoundland that is her search and rescue partner. Um, And it's just like a really cool character. I'm always very nervous when there are animals in like post-apocalyptic books um, because I never want like bad things to happen to them. Yeah. Um, Like the kitten in the Sarah Lyons Fleming Mm -hmm. series, Um, princess like Sparkle Moon or something that cat was called. (laughs) Oh, I love Um, that. And like, I'm just always very, very concerned about this when, when there are animals. Um, But I did really enjoy the the Newfoundland. Um, And so she's on this journey that is dangerous in all kinds of ways, both because you know, there's no power and the internet is gone. Like everything is, is collapsing. And also just because, well, people suck and they do. people, <laughs> yes, especially people in the apocalypse, um, you know, people aren't willing to just like let her, you know, be about her business. Um, this is very, very fast paced. I'm still reading this, um, but I am loving it so incredibly much. This one in audio is like 12 hours. And then the second one, which is The Dark We Seek, is like 15 hours. So these are not short books. And I am very, very, very happy about this. I'm hoping I need to ask Sarah. I'm hoping that the second book does not leave me on a terrible cliffhanger because I, I will be very sad. But this is The Light We Lost, Lost Light. Book one by Kyla Stone. Kyla Stone is sort of a master in this genre. Um, Her Edge of series is really quite something. So my third book for tonight is The Very Secret Society of Irregular Witches. Yay! By Sangu Mandana. And... I loved this book. Um, Like it's one of those that I kind of feel like I'm not a big rereader, but I feel like I could reread this book and it'd be just as amazing the second time around. And I might pick up on things the second time around that I didn't the first time. And, you know, it, it would just be kind of like starting it all over again for the first time just in a different way. Um, 
So this book is about Mika Moon. And Mika Moon is one of very few witches in Britain. And the rules for witches are you, you don't hang out with other witches. You avoid using magic unless it's absolutely necessary. And you don't reveal what you really are to others. And another thing about witches is that most witches are orphans. Because of a curse gone wrong centuries ago, parents of witches are somehow, in some shape, form, or fashion, killed soon after their child is born. Oh. So they, they could be in an accident, they could get sick, you know, just something happens that takes their parents away. And so they are usually orphans. They, they may be raised by other witches, um, but, or by grandparents or things of that nature, but their mothers and, and fathers are, are not there, which is very sad. Yes. Um, but Emika Moon, for the most part, she, she follows the rules with one little exception. <laughs> she has a YouTube channel where she <laughs> makes potions and does pretty magical things. Um, but she doesn't think anybody will take it seriously. But it's, it's a way that she can be herself, but not expose herself for what she really is at the same time. Because, you know, most people don't think magic or witches are real and so she just doesn't think that anybody is going to take her seriously and go oh you're a witch let's put you on the stake um but somebody does take it seriously and she receives an email begging her to go to this place called nowhere house to help three young witches control their magic and Mika has to decide whether she's going to do this because it breaks all of the rules. But she's not so sure that it's legitimate. You know, this could be a trap. You know, somebody took her seriously and is trying to draw her out. But, you know, what the hello, right? Let's do it. So she packs up. She doesn't have a lot of stuff because she doesn't stay in one spot very long, um, you know, because of her magic and she uses her magic. Um, she just feels it's safer to continuously move around so that she's never pinpointed by another witch or anything of that nature. Um, and so she packs up her her little apartment. She has a koi pond that she takes with her. As well as a greenhouse full of how do you move different a plants? Pond? Mm, it's magic. Um, and she has this wonderful golden retriever named Circe's that I fell in love with. I want that dog very badly. Circe's <laughs> um, is not magic. She is very much real. But um, 
but she's kind of Mika's only friend, really, because she doesn't really she doesn't make a lot of friends because she moves around so much and she doesn't she's she's not able to hang out with other witches. So, you know, Cersei's is really the only being she can kind of be herself with. So she packs up her belongings and she takes off to nowhere house where it is not a hoax. She is needed. And the three children she has been asked to help are definitely witches, three little girls. And they are being taken care of by these four people that are very much not magical. But they love these children. They know what they are, what they can do, but they love them and they keep them hidden and protected. The house that they are living in belongs to a witch. And here's where a twist comes because the owner of this house has not been seen in a very long time. And her solicitor is starting to get curious. And so Mika has to decide if she is going to help this family and use her magic for the protection of this family because by this point she has you know she's found a family that she didn't know she was looking for or even really wanted there's very much found family and it's beautiful um this family is made up of like i said the three little girls a retired actor who is quite the funny man he is um he's an older gentleman and he's very loud and proud and and just very dramatic but he's he's awesome um you have his partner who is the groundskeeper for this house and and land you have the housekeeper and then there's jamie He's the librarian and he is very protective of his three young charges. And by everything he can think of, Mika is nothing but a threat. A very tempting, beautiful threat, but nonetheless a threat. So we have a little bit of a romance twist here. We have some very devious plotting that goes on. Um, and you have quite a bit of found family and some kind of uprooting of the old rules and making new ways of things. Um, but this is just such a beautiful story all the way around of people coming together to help each other and finding love and family where you didn't know you needed it or kind of, you know, was raised to believe that you didn't need anyone else because alone is how you survive as a witch. But that's not who Mika is ultimately. And she is definitely learning that about herself throughout this whole book. So I highly recommend this book. Um, it's not like anything I have ever read before with witches. Um, and it, it's just absolutely delightful. So this is 
The Very Secret Society of Irregular Witches by Sangu Mandana. And I also have to say that the narrator, I cannot remember her name right now, um, but she is British. And so she does this book so well. She really does it justice. And I think that too made it all the better for me because the narrator can really make or break a book for me. Absolutely. My final book of the evening is by another favorite author. I know I keep saying that, but you know, there really have been so many good books that have come out recently, which it's hard for me to say that because I also feel like December is a time where I struggle to find a lot of books. December is like kind of winding down books. It is. Yeah, it is. But November was a friendly, fabulous time. And that's when I read, yes, I read Two Wrongs Make a Right by Chloe Lease. And Chloe Lease is amazing. She's a goddess. She's fabulous. And there should be like songs sung in her honor and there should be holidays to her. She's just a really, really wonderful writer. (laughs) I I tend to agree because I just recently got on the Chloe Lease train. (laughs) Yeah. And you know, what I like about her is that she adds characters with disabilities very effortlessly into her Mm storylines without it, you know, and as an own voices author, um, she really does it very well. So this book is about B and Jamie. And B is sort of going through some things right now. Um, Her twin sister is dating this man and there, it's been like sort of a whirlwind relationship. And the first uh, scene of the book is at her sister's boyfriend's birthday party that she's hosting. Um, the boyfriend proposes to her. And B is very disgruntled by this because they haven't been dating long. And she sort of feels as though maybe he may not be the right person for her sister, but she's trying to be happy for her because as is not often the case in books that include twins, B and her sister are very close and they love each other very much. Thank you, Chloe Lise. So B's at this birthday party and she's feeling very disgruntled and she ends up meeting the boyfriend's best friend, Jamie, in a spectacularly bad first impression way. And from this sort of like this uh, antagonistic relationship is born. They keep getting thrust together. And every time they do, things keep happening that make B look like a klutzy girl who spills shit and Jamie look like an uptight broomstick up his bum type person all the time. And so their first impressions of each other are not favorable. However, among the friend group, they all fancy themselves matchmakers, and they just think that B and Jamie would be such a perfect match. So they do a bunch of contriving to get them together on a date. And part of that contriving includes an epistolary element, which I've already stated in this very same podcast, is one of my most favorite things to read in romance along with enemies to lovers. So this whole book was my catnip. So when Jamie and B meet each other on this date, they are at first horrified 
that they are who they are meeting, if that makes sense, because they didn't know in advance that they were meeting each other on this date. But they decide they are going to put this whole thing to bed once and for all, and they are going to beat their friends and siblings at their own game. They are going to fake date each other in spectacular fashion. And then they are going to very dramatically break up to get all of their friend group off of their backs so that they can just be left alone to be who they are without having to be together. This book includes many fabulous dates. It includes um, the fact that B is an erotic artist, which is totally fabulous. Um, and she's also neurodivergent as well. Um, and that's explored in some pretty lovely detail. Jamie is also dealing with a lot. Um, he is a pediatrician who does not meet his family's lofty expectations because he's not a more prominent type of doctor. And he struggles with, with some pretty significant, um, well, I'm not going to say what. And, but as the two of them get to know each other, they realize, they start to realize that their first impressions may have been completely wrong and that maybe the two of them together just might be absolutely right. And I love this book because it's all the things that I said, but I also love it for its very positive disability rep. Um, you know, I do wish that sometimes authors would show characters with visible disabilities, but, you know, when it comes to um, disability representation in romance, we're moving at the speed of a glacier. Um, so, you know, right now I'm just happy that we have people with um, neurodivergent or other non-visible disabilities who are getting some airtime and we're able to see them getting their happily ever afters. And like I said, Chloe Lease is a master because of her positive disability representation and her gorgeous, multi-layered, amazing storytelling. This book is the first um, in a new series about B and her sisters. I think it's the Wilmot sisters, Wilmot sisters. And this again is Two Wrongs Make a Right by the amazing and fabulous and ridiculously talented Chloe Lease. All right, my final book tonight is a contemporary YA. Um, it was the second book I read this year, which is easy to say since it's only like the third <laughs> day of the year. Um, this is We Deserve Monuments by Joss Hammonds. And I believe this is a debut. So Avery Anderson is in her senior year of high school and her whole high school career has been disrupted by the COVID pandemic. And so she's just feeling like, you know, the senior, her senior year is like the last chance she has to do everything that she wanted to do in high school. Um, she's hoping that she can get into Georgetown University. She wants to basically do the things that she needs to do to be the best possible applicant to Georgetown University. But then she learns that her grandmother, from whom her family has been estranged for most of Avery's life, has been diagnosed with cancer and doesn't have very long to live. Uh, 
And suddenly, Avery's mother decides that they need to leave Washington, D.C., where they've lived, and go back to Georgia, where you know, her mom grew up, and they are going to stay with Avery's grandmother to help her through like the last months of her life. And Avery is not here for this. She is really upset about this. Um, Avery is mixed race. Her mom is black and her dad is white. She's also a lesbian and she's just not sure how this is gonna go over in a small Georgia town. But she doesn't have a choice. Her parents are united in this and the family is going to Georgia. So when they get there, she is dismayed to find that her grandmother is this very cantankerous, like unhappy woman who does not really want her family there. Um, there is obviously a lot of pain and trauma in the whole like familial relationship. And Avery doesn't really understand what's at the root of this. And this bothers her. She wants to dig deep into her family secrets, but her family isn't very forthcoming about these things. And this causes Avery to kind of try to figure things out on her own. And like side note, if you're 17 and trying to figure out like certain things about your, your family, maybe don't do it because it, it doesn't seem to like end well for you, at least not in this book. So as she's trying to figure out, you know, all these things about her family and like why her mom and her grandmother just can't get along and why so many people have like very unkind things to say about her grandmother, she's also struggling to fit in at school. She forms a friendship with Simone, who is her next door neighbor, and Jade, who is the daughter of the town's most prominent family. Um, Simone is black and Jade is white. And Jade's family is linked to Avery's in some ways that are surprising and terrible. Um, at, its, at its core, I think this is a story that looks at generational trauma in a way that like as a white person, I don't have, you know, the, the firsthand knowledge of, of these things. And so this really opened my eyes in some ways to things that are passed down, um, you know, from mother to daughter and father to son, and just sort of reverberate down through the generations. Um, it is a novel about figuring out who you are and being okay with that, even when who you are is, is kind of messy and not always appreciated. Um, it's also kind of a, like a, I don't know, a, a, a romance in some ways. Avery finds that she has a lot of feelings for Simone and Simone is not quite sure of her sexuality. She thinks Maybe she's gay, but she doesn't know how her family is going to feel about this and whether this is a side of herself that she can embrace. It's a novel of racism, of small town life, um, and of family in a way that you don't really expect. Um, Avery finds solace in, in her family in a way that 
she doesn't really think that she will when she first gets to Georgia. I loved this for its complexity, um, but also for the author's way of just making this so compulsively readable, even when the subject matter is deep and hard and messy. So this once again is We Deserve Monuments by Joss Hammonds. My final book tonight is Tattered Stars, Tattered and Torn, book one by Katherine Cowell. Um, this series revolves around the Easton family, mostly, and this first book is Hayes Easton and Everly Kemper, um, their story. So as a child, Everly Kemper grew up in Wolf, Wolf Gap, Oregon, and her father he was a prepper and he was very adamant that his children be ready for any event any and all event um he was also very fanatical about the fact that doctors were evil and they were putting things in your body that shouldn't be there and it was a government Ooh. ploy and just he was very radical um and so everly grew up in a very interesting household her mother was very loving and and you know did her best by by her children but her father was you know hammers down you know the leader of the family and what he said go or you know goes unless they could kind of navigate around him without him finding out and because of the kind of radical he was he created quite the upheaval for the Easton family. Um, he kidnapped one of the Easton children oh. and takes her up to their land up on the mountain and hides her in this shed. Um. And yeah, but eventually Everly who's a very young child at this point, I think she's like maybe eight or nine. Um, she waits for her father to go to bed and she sneaks out and gets her horse and goes to the sheriff's station. And she takes down the missing persons poster on the bulletin board out front. And she goes in and says, I know where this little girl is. Um, she's on our property and they don't really believe her at first, but you know, it's, it's a lead. They have to check it out. And so they go up to the property and they do find this little girl and her dad is arrested and, and convicted for, for this crime. After her father goes to jail, um, Everly leaves Wolf Gap and goes to live with her older sister, who is married at this point, goes to live with her and her husband in a completely different state. But as an adult, she has come back to Wolf Gap because she was left the family property after her mother passed away. And she knows that coming back is probably not going to be 
all sunshine and rainbows. There is a bit of a rift. Um, Hayes Easton is now the sheriff of Wolf, Wolf Gap. As a kidnapping will, it really tore up the Easton family. Um, but Everly wants to turn this land into a sanctuary for abused and neglected animals. And so this is Everly and Hayes' story and how um, coming home after so long and after such tragedy, you know, it may be rough, um, but with the right people on your side, it can feel like home again. And eventually, you know, people do see what she's doing as a good thing. And this series itself follows um, the Easton family and also a couple of people in the Kemper family. Um, there is quite a bit of found family here. There's a lot of love and small town camaraderie that I really love to see in books. Um, so I have read the first two books so far. This first book is called Tattered Stars, and it is Tattered and Torn, book one by Catherine Cowell. So she writes these at like super speed. Yeah, because like they, I see a new one like every couple of months. So she's definitely um, very, very prolific. prolific. So this concludes our first episode of 2023. Thank you to Stacy and Kristen for joining me tonight. As always, thanks goes out to Christine for all of her editing. And of course, we thank each and every one of you so much for joining us each week as we talk about great books. If you would like to leave us a rating or a review, you can do that on Apple Podcasts or any other platform that you use to access the show. Not only does it tell us what you think, but it also helps other people find us when they're looking for book-related podcasts. Um, it kind of advances us in the Google algorithm. So I will be back next Tuesday morning with an author interview and, of course, the guide to new releases. And some number of us will be back on Friday with more bookish greatness. Take care, everybody. Mm-hmm.